カハンニャハラミタシンギョー Thank you for joining the Zen Care Podcast. These recorded Dharma talks are given freely to our community in the heart of New York City, which we are honored to now share with you. New York Zen Center for Contemplative Care is dedicated to transforming the nature of care through contemplative practice by meeting illness, aging, and death with compassion and wisdom. Learn about us at zencare.org. Good morning and good afternoon. What is your life about? What is your life actually about? Been thinking about that this morning. What's your life actually about? What are you actually doing to support that? Or are you even reflecting on it? What your life's about? I was so struck. We were having dinner with someone last night, and I asked one of the people we we're having dinner with, I like, oh, how is it going? I'm like, nah. <laughs> nah. And I said, oh, what do you imagine for yourself? And they're like, I just felt like the heartbreak of that. Like having no kind of imagination or engagement. Feeling that discontent and yet not actually engaging. I was very recently talking to someone about. You know, when you feel that, how do you kind of summon up that cowgirl in you and meet it? How do you meet your life? Even if it feels scary to do that. Or uncomfortable to do that. Today is the fifty fourth day of our practice period, our Ongo period. And Charlotte Joko Beck, the selected text from today is What does it feel like to be freer of your need for control? It's a little presumptuous question. 
It's assuming that you're feeling freer of your need for control. I find it such an interesting question. The presumption mostly the most interesting part of it. Because some of us do not feel free of that. Or have little moments. Need to be controlling all the time. And the same person who was like, mm -hmm. the whole time was kind of checking their phone for how their dog was doing. And kind of yelling at their dog through their phone to shut up. It was very strange. And while this person loves that dog. But to me, it's like this kind of constant space that we can get into where we're not really reflecting on what are we doing? What's our life about? We're just like, nah, nah. And not really engaging. Like, what am I doing? How am I talking to myself? What am I doing with my life? How do I actually experience and foster experience of being a little bit freer of my need to control everything? Can I allow other people to exist? Can I allow other aspects of myself to exist? Many of us have like, like one dominant aspect of ourselves that we just like kind of plow through. But to me, the beauty of practice and why I love Zen practice so much is everything is practice for a reason. Reading is a practice. Dogasan is a practice. Sitting is a practice. Walking is a practice. Work is a practice. Everything. Speech. Thoughts. To me, it's like this incredible map that's saying like diversity itself is of your life is practice. The same with your own mind. Can you allow that diversity in your own mind? She asks, what is your what is our experience when it's not motivated by fear, anger, and guilt? Do you have experiences that are not motivated by fear, anger, and guilt? Ever do something and we're really harsh to yourself about it? Just one person. The rest of you. <laughs> So you are completely free. Hmm. 
To me, it's very beautiful. You know, this morning was the beginning of our our Shuso and Joshin uh, starting this intro to our Zen practice here that'll happen every other Sunday. Like the basic things. And it's a generosity. It's not, you know, very often we think that we're practicing for something. I'm going to practice and I'll get something. Many people come to Zen practice because like, we feel shitty and we're like, we want to feel peaceful. Well, for those of you who are new, that's going to not work out. Because <laughs> it's actually not what it's about. It's about learning how to be with things as they are and how you are in the midst of it. I remember beginning practice and feeling very disappointed that that's not what it was about because I had this fantasy of these statues, like they look peaceful. They're also statues. <laughs> Caught in a good moment. <laughs> Traditionally, there's the statues are also seated, the images, the bodhisattvas, who are not people, but they are kind of qualities sitting on top of animals. They're paired like a diamond on a, which to me always, the animal is sort of like what reminds us of the work itself. Right? I love and like this one over here that, sorry Zoomers, but the, there's an image of Manjushri sitting and they are just like in the pose of royal ease on top of a lion who's kind of looking up at them and like you don't know what so it's like a raw shack like is the lion gonna bite manjushri is the lion feeling affectionate we don't know so But to realize that there is some wildness that is actually part of the practice, not something to get rid of. We're not trying to feel a certain way. We're trying to be actually practicing being alive with all that is. Some of us are studying um, on Wednesdays for the springtime, a very delightful, but at least for myself and experience, a very delightful study of our Zen ancestors from Shakyamuni Buddha through Dogen Zenji, the founder of our school in Japan. And we're slowly making our way through 
like right now we're in our 88th generation, but we're just in starting the 19th generation in our study. And the 19th successor was Kumarata. And Kumarata was highly respected scholar before he began practicing, so he was quite learned, quite intellectually smart. He knew a lot about the Buddhist teachings, read a lot of books, listened to a lot of podcasts, used some apps, but never actually encountered practice. Actually, Carlos and I were talking about this, that dynamic, right? It's a big difference, right? Reading, listening, as opposed to being with and engaging in the practice. And it says that until Kumarata's teacher, Gayashata, tested him, that's when his heart opened when he was challenged, when life challenged him. So remember, it's not like through ease that we open, but through challenge. And in the Zen tradition, we highly value the challenge of a teacher, the challenge of community, the challenge of actually what does it mean to be in relationship? I don't really know another one of the Buddhist schools that values the relationship so much. Salut. So the story goes that um, Kumarata went to see Gayashata, because he was interested in learning about, let's see what I can learn from this person. Still with a transactional kind of mind. Ever do that? Like go to a place like, I'll see, you know, what I can garner. <laughs> Never keep yourself a little removed from participating. And the teacher asked him, what group do you belong to? Kumarata said, I am a disciple of the Buddha. And his teacher became alarmed and shut the door. <laughs> <laughs> I find that so charming. Because the teacher's just showing him basically what he is doing. 
This is, remember, 19 generations after the Buddha, Shakyamuni Buddha had died. A little while had passed. I am a disciple. What group do you belong to? I am a disciple. So the teacher is showing, you know, the alarm. Showing the way, like, be alarmed. We often don't witness ourselves very well. But Kumarata was like, kept knocking at the door though, like, hello, hello. <laughs> Gayashata said, just responded, there's no one home. There's no one home at all. Kumarata said, who then is answering if there's no one? I know what's so interesting is I just read this backwards. It's so great. Interesting flip. Hmm. I think this is one of the wonderful parts of teachers and students. To me, always a good teacher is realizes that they're also a student, like myself. <laughs> hmm. Yeah, so Kumarata was the one who said, what group do you belong to? The way this is written is kind of funky. Kumarata <clears throat> asked his teacher, what group do you belong to? Which is also an important question. Whoever asks is an important question. And his teacher said, I am a disciple of the Buddha. I follow the Buddha way. And it was Kumarata who shut the door and got scared. It's so interesting how it could work either way. I'm just really enjoying that actually. Because the teacher could have been showing him that he was doing that anyway. Is that making sense? So cool. But his teacher kept knocking anyway for a long time. Teacher just kept knocking. Hello, hello. 
It's like texting someone when they don't respond. Just text again. Not make a story about it. Ever make stories about things? Instead of just knock again? Why didn't they whatever? Who cares? And Kumarata said, there is no one home at all. I'm not here. It really reminds her of a very funny story. <laughs> Chodo and I went to the... <laughs> Chodo and I went <laughs> to this retreat. It was a very interesting retreat. It was a very long retreat. It was a 10 day retreat about POA, which is a Tibetan practice that we were really interested in learning about. And there was this very esteemed teacher from Tibet living in Nepal who was coming to offer this retreat for 10 days. And we're like, well, that sounds super interesting because it's a practice about releasing someone's energy at the moment of death. And so we decided to go. And uh, it had turned out that the first day that we arrived at this 10 day retreat that the translator had quit. Oh <laughs> And the teacher does not speak English. So it carried on anyway. And it's a very, it's actually very different from any practice I had ever done before. It's very devotional. And so the Rinpoche person is like, you know, the white scarves, and it's like a big thing. And he was teaching from morning until night in Tibetan with no translator and most of the people the whole time were like, ooh, like this is like, so we're, they're having a big experience. And Chodo and I were a little skeptical. And maybe a little judgy. <laughs> but it was very interesting and you know, to, to see the form of it. But anyway, this went on for 10 days. And on the last night, there was supposed to be a big storm. And so the teacher said, somehow communicated that he was going to teach through the night to receive this special empowerment ceremony. And at that point, Chodo and I kind of had, we felt like kind of done. Never feel done. <laughs> so after 10 days of morning to night teachings in Tibetan that we couldn't understand, which probably were amazing, but we don't know, right? And we just have no idea. And so we decided like we're not going to stay up through the whole night for the last teachings. But because we're monks, we're very poorly behaved. and. Uh, we decided to hide in our room. 
Monks, monks, Rinpoche would like to, is waiting to give the teachings until you come down. <laughs> There's no one home. There's no. It's terrible. Terrible behavior. So we we're giggling under the under the covers. <laughs> they carried on without us. Not appropriate behavior, and yet funny. And yet funny. Hmm. makes me think of that there's no one home at all it's like we were not really that generous it is still funny but also like this teacher said you know who then is answering there is no one here who's answering who's giggling under the covers And when Kumarata heard those words, he knew this was an extraordinary person. So he opened the door and let him in. Something very beautiful about that. To me, this is a requirement of practice to open the door and let the teachings, let your teacher in. And to really look at the ways in which we can do that and not do that. To look at how we hide even from that basic question, like, what's my life about? We can hide from that. Thinking about that person at the dinner, like, nah. We can just hide in our discontent, even. So how do we, like, get that kind of cowgirl energy going? I don't even know where that's coming from, but, like, it just feels like fun and spunky and courageous and loving to actually meet our life in a fresh way. How do you do that? Kazan wrote a little poem about Komarata and his teacher, and he said, 
overturning previous lives in separate bodies. Today, there is a face-to-face -face encounter with the fellow from ancient times. To me, when we open that door to teacher, to community, to practice, to the teachings themselves, we are face-to-face -face with all that has come before us, all that is here, and all that is to come. It is actually available, and it's not an idea. It's not a belief. It's definitely my experience in moments. And to me, it really only happens when we open that door and really live what our life is about. To me, that's one of the reasons why Zen practice is so engaging because everything matters. How we show up matters everywhere. There is not a place that's not a place of practice. So it's always so funny when people say, oh, I didn't practice yesterday. I'm like, wow, where were you all day? <laughs> were you in a fog for the entire day? And that is true for most of us. So to remember, just when we're not sitting zazen, it doesn't mean that you can still practice. Laying down is a place of practice. Standing is a place of practice. Walking is a place of practice. Opening your apartment door and getting your kitty is a place of practice. everything. That's what makes it so extraordinary. At least for me. How about you?